righteousness and true holiness. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's a colic from the Book of Common Prayer for all baptized Christians. And uh, given the fact that we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 8 and the story of the deacon Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, it seemed an appropriate one because baptism plays a prominent role uh, in this particular story. And it's a subject that I want us to explore in a little further detail this morning. So if you're with us for the first time, we are in Acts chapter 8. Um, welcome. We're delighted to have you with us today. Um, Acts chapter 8. And we are beginning at verse 26, so halfway through Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Well, last week when we were together, we took a look at the story and the life and the ministry of this man, Philip. We said one of the seven early deacons of the church, and we said that God took this man who was an evangelist, and we said last week, he's the only person, incidentally, in the New Testament that is described as an evangelist. He's the only one that gets that title. So it's not to say that the apostles, of course, weren't doing evangelism. They did. But this seems to be this man's particular spiritual gift, evangelism. And so the Lord takes him, we're told, and sends him north. We said that this was in fulfillment of Jesus' great commission, at least the Acts version of the great commission, where the Lord had said that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and finally to the ends of the earth. Well, the apostles had certainly been ministering and evangelizing in and around Jerusalem. But now we see that ministry expanding beyond Jerusalem. It's going north into Samaria, and we're going to see it's also going to go south as well. But it's going north into Samaria, and we said that it was this man, this early deacon, Philip, who takes the gospel there. And this was courageous, we said, because the Samaritans were sworn enemies of the Jews. 
They were regarded as half-breeds. They were regarded as collaborators from centuries before, and they were hated and despised. As much as the Jews may have disliked the Greeks or the Gentiles, they particularly disliked the Samaritans. And yet, Philip goes there, and he preaches the gospel there in Samaria. And as far as we can tell, he has a very successful ministry. In fact, he is so successful that the word trickles back to Jerusalem that great things are happening, that people are being converted, that even the Samaritans are repenting of their sins and coming back. And my goodness, if a Samaritan can be saved, then anybody can be saved. That was the attitude. And so what happens is they send the apostles up there to look in on this, see what's going on. And we're told that Peter went up there. And that's when we have the story about the magician, Simon Magus. And we talked about that last week. But the point, you see, is that the gospel is, is going into Samaria. Things are going well. It's, it's a flourishing ministry. It's a healthy thing. And then all of a sudden we find out here in verse 26 that God takes this man who's being very successful, doing great things, making inroads in an area where people were really pagan in their outlook, and he suddenly lifts Philip out of that and sends him in the opposite direction. Have you ever been confused by God's ways in your life? Have you ever found God's ways mysterious in your life? I find this particular story to be somewhat mysterious, that God should take this man. And sometimes that's happened. Uh, It happened in my own life some years ago. I had a man who was very influential in my life in terms of preaching and teaching. Uh, Just a wonderful man. He pastored for many years at a great church in Philadelphia. And then... um, suddenly was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, was diagnosed on Good Friday, early in the morning, climbed into the pulpit later that afternoon, delivered a fantastic sermon, and within about a month and a half, he was gone. And he was only 62 years of age. He had a worldwide ministry. He was doing marvelous things. And I have to admit, I had a hard time understanding why God would allow somebody like that to be taken away. Uh, Those of you, how many of you went to the Mere Anglicanism Conference last year? Uh, If you were there, you saw a young man um, by the name of Nabil Qureshi speak. Uh, He was a young physician, a doctor, who had been converted from Islam and has now spent his entire life evangelizing and sharing the good news of Jesus. Um, He wrote a wonderful book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And if you were there, you were captivated by him. Uh, We were trying to get somebody else Uh, to come in and speak. And um, we were told by Ravi Zacharias, that's who we were trying to get, you don't want me, you want Nabil Qureshi. And so we felt we were settling. And then Nabil came, and he was just amazing. Just a young man in his 30s. And uh, we were just told um, a few months back that he was diagnosed with stage 4 stomach cancer. And he is now in a battle for his life. And you wonder why he's had such a profound influence for the sake of the gospel. Why would God allow that to happen to him? It certainly curtailed his ministry opportunities, and if it should be the Lord's will to call him home, it's certainly going to curtail tremendous inroads into the Islamic community for the sake of Christ. And you can't help but wonder sometimes, what is, what is God doing? And I think this is one of those instances. What is, what is God doing here? Well, I think the simple answer is, We don't always know. I mean, we have to be aware of the fact that sometimes God's ways are not our 
ways. That's what the prophet Isaiah says. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways as the mountains are higher than the sea. Uh, I think sometime, someday in eternity, all of our questions will either be answered or we won't care as much about them. You know, I've heard people say, well, when we get to heaven, all of our, all of our questions will be answered. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that we will know everything when we get to heaven. Um, we will be glorified creatures, but we're still going to be creatures. And we will never know all that God knows. That's just an impossibility. We'll have eternity to learn, uh, but we still won't know everything. But I do think there are some of those questions that plague our minds now that we really have trouble with when we get to heaven and we see God and all that he's done. I think some of those questions will sort of fade into the distance. They won't be as important to us. But at any rate, at this point in our lives, we see through a glass dimly. We don't always understand what God is doing. And I think that's the case here. God takes this man from a successful ministry. In fact, you can almost, if you were, if you were there in that church, you can almost hear people beginning to grumble. And, and maybe even in their prayer time, plead with God, oh, don't take, don't take Philip away from us. My goodness, Philip's doing great things. But God took Philip. And I think what's remarkable is that Philip was obedient. He didn't say, oh, no, Lord, the, the work's prospering here. I, I, I need to get a, a group of evangelists in place to carry on the work. There's no time. Philip, we're told, is just obedient. When the Lord said to him, go south on the road going down from Jerusalem toward Gaza, we're told that he went. And God blessed him on this particular occasion. We don't know the exact outcome of the story, uh, but we do know some indicators as to what probably happened here. So take a look again at Acts chapter 8, verses 26 and following. We're told that the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. It's a desert place. <laughs> You're not likely to find people in the desert. I used to always be very critical of the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. Forty years in the wilderness and it seems for 40 years they griped and complained and moaned to the Lord. And on several occasions he had to discipline them. And I used to think to them, just a bunch of complaining people. And then I went down and traveled through the Sinai Peninsula. And let me tell you, I came away with a great deal more respect for the Israelites. I'm afraid I would have groaned and moaned a whole lot more than they did. It is a barren, God-forsaken place. There's hardly anything there. A few Bedouins, and you wonder how they ever eke out an existence. So we see that God taking Philip from this, this very healthful, flourishing ministry and he puts him on a road going to the south, to a desert. And yet it's there that he encounters this Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. Now, Ethiopia today is a small country southeast of Egypt. But in the first century, it was a much larger tract of land. In fact, it really covered the whole section between Aswan and Khartoum, what is now Aswan and Khartoum today. So this was a huge swath of land. It was a wealthy and it was an important country. And it's there as he's going south that he encounters this Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, I'm inclined to believe that this is a continuing chapter in a very old story. Now, I don't know this for certain, 
This is Miller's sanctified speculation. It's speculation, but it is sanctified, I think. At any rate, I think it's a very recent chapter and a very old story. Ethiopia, as I said, was this large tract of land. This is not the first time that we encounter it in the scriptures. We have encountered it centuries before during the reign of King Solomon. We are told that the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon and to learn from him. Remember that story? Uh, the Gospel of Matthew describes this person as the Queen of the South. So there was this woman who was the Queen of the Ethiopians. She had heard about the fame and the wisdom and the wealth of Solomon, and she had traveled up to meet this great king and to learn from him. Now, we don't know all of the details of that story, but it does tell us that Solomon was an extraordinary figure, that his fame had spread far and wide, and people, even pagan peoples from other lands. And remember, the whole mandate for the Jewish people was to come out and be separate. They were not to be like the other people around them. They were to be separate, and yet other people had heard about them and were traveling. Well, I can't help but wonder if this queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, having heard of all of Solomon's wisdom and having come and sat at his feet and heard the story of the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I can't help but believe that she took that back with her to her own country. Now, why do I say that? Well, you've got this Ethiopian eunuch. He has been where? He has been to Jerusalem. Now, you might say he was just up there on business. I mean, obviously, he's a government official. He may have gone to Jerusalem to negotiate some sort of a treaty or whatever it was. But what is interesting is that he is a pagan. He's a eunuch, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he is a pagan, he is a eunuch, and yet, as he's traveling in his chariot, he's reading what? He's reading the Old Testament. Now, why would a pagan do that sort of thing? It may very well have been the case that this man was what they called in those days a God-fearer. Somebody who had not converted to Judaism, but somebody who was nevertheless deeply interested in the things of Judaism. You have to understand, the Jews were regarded as a unique people in the ancient world. When we think of the three great religions that are in the world today, the three top religions, what do we think of? Well, we generally think of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And what's interesting is that all of those three religions, the three dominant religions today, are all monotheistic. It was the exact opposite in the first century. The vast majority of people were not monotheistic. The vast majority of people were polytheistic. The Romans and the Greeks, they had a pantheon of deities. And they worshipped all of them. Let me tell you, they had hundreds and hundreds of gods in those days. Uh, on, we'll find out when the Apostle Paul goes to Athens that he's very disturbed because he went to Athens and he felt that the place was filled with idols. They used to say it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. The Romans even had a god of the door hinges. No exaggeration. And if you think that's bad, they even had one for the compost pile. So they had all of these gods. So monotheism was unique in the ancient world. And that's one of the things that attracted people to the Jews, was that they were monotheistic. And of course, the religion that grew out of Judaism was Christianity. And the religion that grew out of Christianity was what? Islam. So it's interesting that they all trace that monotheism back to Judaism. 
So people were attracted. What is it about these Jews that they only believe that there's one God, the Creator God, and not all of this whole pantheon or plethora of gods? And so people were drawn to this. And this man may very well have been one of those. But it could have been that he was one of those because somewhere in the history of his nation, the flame had been kept alive from one of those former rulers the queen of the south who had gone to Solomon and she brought back this message and somebody had kept that flame alive over the years. You know, there are stories like that and it is possible. Oh, one of my favorite stories comes out of um, the period in uh, Soviet history when Glasnost, of course, Mikhail Gorbachev was the premier, and Glasnost, that spirit of openness, was beginning to permeate Russian society. And... Um, the Russians wanted to show the world that they, were, they weren't as bad. They weren't, they weren't the evil empire that Ronald Reagan had said they were. And, and so what they were trying to do was, you know, show that we're, we're, we're not suppressing anything. And, of course, they had been. They'd been suppressing Christianity in particular. But they decided on one of these occasions that they were going to show the world that they were open. And this is a true story. I read it years ago. And so what they did, it was one of these big military holidays where the Russians, you know, come out and they have this big parade and there are missiles going by and troops marching. And, but they decided there'd be speeches by all the politicians, but they were going to invite an old Russian Orthodox priest, priest to say a few words. Now, he had been given very strict instructions. He was not to speak for a long time and he was not supposed to deliver a sermon. But he was allowed to be up there in his robes and his beard and so forth. And, and they picked the most decrepit, doddering old priest they could possibly find in the hopes that he would stand up there at the podium, say something absurd, and people would say, well, there you go. And remember, for years, they had not been permitted to worship openly. And the story goes that all of the politicians spoke, all the military figures spoke, and then finally they turned this old doddering piece the people had this sort of glazed over look on their faces. They were just ready for it all to be over. And the old priest stumbles up to the podium and he looks out over the crowd and he's very brief. He said, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And the story goes that hundreds of thousands of voices responded, the Lord is risen indeed, Hallelujah. And so for all those decades, they had tried to suppress the message of the gospel, but the people had kept the flame alive. Might that not have been the case here? I think it may very well have been the case. There are other examples of this, I think, that you might find in the Old Testament. When Jesus was born, we're told that wise men came from the east, bearing gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Where did they come from? Well, they came from an area of Babylon that had been conquered by the Persians. This was the same region where the people of Judah had been taken off into exile centuries before. People like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what had Daniel done? He had risen to great heights in that place. And he had borne witness. They had refused to what? To bow down to the king and to his images. And they'd been thrown, three of them, into the fiery furnace and God had preserved them. Well, maybe these... Magi who came from the east were a people who had heard the message. That's why they came searching for the king of the what? 
of the Jews. We have seen his sign in the heavens. Could it be that somewhere along the line they had heard the message and the message that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had proclaimed had been carried on down through the centuries and there was a faithful remnant. (laughs) Well, I think that's probably the case here. I think that this is a new chapter in an old story and I think that this man had gone up to Jerusalem. There was much that he didn't understand, but he had heard the stories. They had been passed down and he was curious. And so he is riding along, coming out, reading from the prophet Isaiah. And we're told that the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip and said, go up to that chariot. Now, in those days, a chariot would have been more like a stagecoach sort of thing, like a carriage as opposed to a chariot. If you imagine Spartacus and the the chariot races, it's not that kind of a chariot. He is a wealthy, powerful man. He's a eunuch. Now that sounds strange to us, but you have to understand that in many pagan societies where kings had harems, uh, men were made to be eunuchs so that they could guard the king's harem without being tempted. Oftentimes, eunuchs were placed in high positions of trust because they were not easily tempted. And so they oftentimes achieved very high status in society. It was a great sacrifice that you made on behalf of your sovereign, but it was one that could also lend to your being promoted to high position. This man's a very powerful individual. He's in charge of the treasury. He's the chancellor of the exchequer or, or more than that. And he's riding along and we're told that he's reading out loud. That was the common thing in the first century to read out loud. It's exact opposite. We go into a library. If you start reading out loud, they're going to ask you to leave. But in the first century, that's what you did. You read out loud. Part of that was due to the fact that the scrolls The way the scrolls were written, the writing was so densely packed that you didn't want to lose your place. And so people read out loud. And we're told that Philip runs along, side of this chariot, he hears this man reading out loud, and he immediately recognizes what he's reading from. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he's reading the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. So if you've got your fingers, put them right there in Acts and flip back, if you will, to the prophet Isaiah. And let's just take a look at what this man was reading. And we're already beginning to see that it may have seemed madness to us that God should have taken Philip from where he was having a successful ministry and placed him down here on this desert road. But all of a sudden, what's happening? He has an encounter with this high-ranking official, this Ethiopian eunuch who's there with his entire entourage who happens to be reading from the Old Testament and from Isaiah 53. Now, we call that a coincidence. But with God, there are no coincidences. This is a divine appointment. Let me encourage you to look at life that way. (laughs) There are no accidents in the Christian life. There are no coincidences in the Christian life. There are divine appointments in the Christian life. It's one of the reasons why when I begin a lot of meetings, I will pray, oh Lord, we have our agenda, but take away our agenda and give us your own. Give us your agenda, Lord. And it's why when I say my prayers in the morning, I say, Lord, open my mind and my heart and my imagination to the opportunities that this day will present. Because every day presents an opportunity for us to minister in Christ's name. And here is an opportunity. Here is a divine appointment. 
Well, at any rate, we've got this Ethiopian eunuch, and he is reading Isaiah 53. Well, let's just read through Isaiah 53. And tell me if you recognize who the prophet might be talking about here. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Those are the very same words that you hear in Handel's Messiah. All we like sheep, that section. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, who do you think Isaiah 53 is all about? Yeah, this is no trick question. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? For us, looking back with the advantage of hindsight, this is Jesus. By his stripes, we are healed. He makes intercession for the transgressors. He was the one who, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Pontius Pilate said to him, Do you not realize, will you not say a word, that I have the power to condemn you or to release you? And Jesus opened not his mouth. Well, this is, this is about Jesus. Well, isn't it a coincidence that God should take this man Philip from this prosperous ministry, place him on this particular road, at this particular moment, in this desert region, where he should encounter this particular high-ranking official who just happens to be reading from Isaiah 53. Gosh, what a coincidence that is. Well, of course it's not. It's a divine appointment. And what's the Latin phrase? Carpe diem. Seize the day. Seize the moment. Now, I suppose at this point, Philip could have said, oh, that's very interesting. But the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, this is your opportunity. Carpe diem, seize this moment, seize this day. And he does. And we're told he runs up alongside the chariot 
and he begins to, with that very passage we're told, share with the eunuch the wonderful message of God. This particular passage, Isaiah 53, he begins to share the message of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. If you were to go to some place and see somebody reading a passage of Scripture, maybe they're just curious. Maybe somebody gave them a Bible and for the first time they're reading it. And if you were to get into a conversation with them and you were to ask them, what are you reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And they said, no, I don't. I need somebody to explain it to me. Would you be able to do it? Would, would you be able to start with whatever the passage of Scripture that they are reading and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them? That's my question to you this morning. Oh. I'm just going to pull one out of the air and test you first and see what you can do. Um, we should be able to do that, and I'll tell you why. Because the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, has one author and one theme. As many writers, and we've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Haggai, the whole way through. But there's only one author, and that's God the Holy Spirit, and there's one theme from Genesis through to Revelation. The first preaching of the gospel does not happen in Matthew. The first preaching of the gospel happens in Genesis, where we're told that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. That's what theologians call the proto-euangelion, the first preaching of the gospel. Who is the seed of the woman that shall crush the head of the serpent? It is Jesus. By his death upon the cross, he shall crush Satan's power. So the whole way through the Bible, from Genesis to, through to the end of Revelation, it's all about Jesus. So we should be able to start wherever we are, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, and begin to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, you might say to yourself, well, I don't have that kind of a working knowledge of the Bible. Well, that's one of the things we have to develop. If you're concerned about the future of Christianity in the West, it's up to us. It's not up to the clergy. There aren't enough of them. And many of the clergy that I know, to be perfectly honest with you, aren't any more equipped than the lay people. And so the challenge is for all of us to become a people of the book, to begin to read, to mark, to learn, to inwardly digest. It's not that you have to memorize it. Some of us are better at memorization than others. But you need to have a working knowledge of the story of the Bible in such a way that you can share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And that is what this man was able to do. Now, what happened? Well, obviously what happened with this particular man was that this rung all of the changes and the bells of his mind, and he began to understand what it was all about. And I, I imagine that starting with that story of, in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, Philip begins to tell him the story of Jesus, and I imagine that he gets to the end of the story where Jesus is now getting ready to leave his disciples, and he commissions them, and he says, now you go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, making disciples of all men, and what? baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And Philip says, that's what the Christian life is all about. And the Ethiopian eunuch's eyes are wide as saucers. And he sees a pond and he says, well, here's water. If you're supposed, What's to prevent me from being baptized? And the story goes that they went down into the water and they were baptized. And you know, one of the things that I love about this story is that Philip doesn't say, well, no, hold on now, back off. 
I'd, I'd love to baptize you, but I, I think I better run this by the apostles first. I, I think I better, you know, look at the, the, you know, the Book of Common Prayer and make sure that you're, you know, you're, everything's being done decently in order. This man had a zeal in his heart for Jesus Christ. He, he, he wanted to come to know this Jesus personally. He wanted to receive this Christ into his heart, and he wanted an outward and visible sign of this inward and spiritual transformation that had taken place in him. And he said, let me be baptized. And we're told that Philip said, all right, let's do it. Right now, let's, let's not hesitate. Let's not see if the calendar's open here. Let's see if we can get it done. Let's see if we can get the altar guild to get the, the bulls together. Let's do it. Let's do it right now, right here. Listen, so often in the church, we put barriers in front of people. We need to seize the opportunity. This man wanted to be baptized, and he was baptized. And I can't help but think that he took this newfound faith back with him to Ethiopia. In fact, tradition says that the church in Ethiopia was founded by this man. You just never know, do you? We think about Billy Graham, who's probably preached to more people on earth than any person who's ever lived. You've got to ask yourself, who brought Billy Graham to faith? Somebody shared the faith with Billy Graham so that Billy Graham could share the faith with others. You just never know. Now, there is one other thing about this story that I want to talk about today before we move on to another great event, one of the most significant events in the history of the world, and that is the conversion of this man, Saul of Tarsus. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about baptism, because I think there's a great deal of confusion about baptism, what it accomplishes and what it doesn't accomplish in the life of the church. First thing I want you to notice with this particular baptism is that the man is baptized as a response to faith. Not as a means to it. He hears the gospel, he understands the gospel, he receives the gospel, and then as an outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual grace, and for those of you who've been raised Anglicans or Episcopalians your whole life, what did I just describe? What did I just give you a definition of? A sacrament. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign. You know your catechism. An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. He has the baptism done to him because he's already heard the gospel and received it. I would argue that every place in the Bible where you see a baptism taking place, that's the order. Which is to say, baptism is a response to salvation not the means to it. Now, many people would argue, well, you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. I don't believe that's true. Now, if you want to argue about it with me, I will. But I'm going to argue from Scripture. The thief on the cross, was he baptized? No. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Gosh, I'd love to but you just weren't baptized. Or you should have been confirmed. Or where were you at Easter last year? Or, well, it wasn't Easter yet, but whatever. Christmas. Uh, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What had happened there? That man had placed his trust 
And that's what the word faith is really all about. The Greek word is pistis. It means to place your trust. He was placing his trust in Christ for his salvation. He could place it no place else. And that was enough to save him. So I'm going to say a couple of things to you. Try to follow along with me because I've got a lot that I want to say about it. Baptism is a response to faith, not a means to it. The act of baptism doesn't save anybody. It is a sign and a symbol of salvation. If it saved people, we might as well forget the preaching of the gospel and just get people lined up and baptize them. All right? Now, that is not to in any way denigrate baptism. So here's my second point. Baptism doesn't save. A person can be saved without being baptized. But I don't believe, now here's the other part of this, I don't believe that a person can claim to be saved and refuse baptism. Why? Because Jesus said, you are to be baptized. And so to say, well, I believe the gospel, but I refuse to be baptized, means you're accepting Jesus as Savior, but you don't want anything to do with him as your Lord. And you can't have both. So while baptism doesn't necessarily save, it is nevertheless an outward and visible sign of that salvation. And we see that throughout the scriptures. We see that here with the Ethiopian eunuch. We see it in other places as well. Now, somebody might ask the question, well, what about infants? Because obviously, we baptize infants. Everybody except the Baptists. Well, here's an interesting thought historically. Every major group that came out of the Reformation in the 16th century, and remember that the great battle cry of the Reformation was what? Ad fontes, back to the sources. We're going back to the way the early church was. A lot of vines and tendrils of tradition have grown up over the church, but we're going to peel those away and get back to the pure religion of the early apostles. That was the battle cry of the Reformation. And they did that. And they got rid of all those vestiges of, of, of medieval Catholicism. But it's interesting to note that every major group, the Anglicans, those who eventually became the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, they all maintained infant baptism. There's only one group that didn't, and that was the Anabaptists. Bear in mind, the Anabaptists are not the same thing as modern Baptists. A lot of modern Baptists came out of the Anglican tradition, the preaching of George Whitfield in the 18th century, ironically. So to all you Baptists and Methodists, it's time to come home to mother. Uh, <laughs> here's your chance. Um, but they all maintain infant baptism. Why? Because the belief was that while the norm in the New Testament was adult baptism, it wasn't the only form. Later on in the book of Acts, we're going to have the story of the Philippian jailer. And we're told that this man um, asks the most, you know the story. Paul and Silas are in Philippi. We're going to eventually get to it in a year and a half, two years, something like that. But eventually, we're going to get there to the story of, of Paul and Silas and Philippi. Philippi was a city that had been settled primarily by former soldiers of the Roman Empire. So it was a very Roman city. Paul and Silas run afoul of the officials in that city because they cast a demon out of a slave girl. And um, she can no longer make money for her masters by telling the future. And so they bring charges against Paul and Silas that these men are Jews and that they are advocating customs unlawful for Romans to practice. The result, and it's all a bunch of hooey, 
And it's not actually the case. And by the way, Paul was a Roman citizen. They don't discover that to the end of the story. But they take Paul and Silas and they throw them in jail. And there's a very good chance they're going to be executed the next morning. And yet they spend that last night in the jail doing what? Well, praying, but primarily singing. And the singing is significant because singing is a sign of praise. So Paul and Silas are resigned to the fact that if it's God's will that they should die, they're ready to go. And they're going to sing his praises right to the end. The caged bird singing. And you can imagine the jailers listening to all of this. And you can imagine what the guards are thinking. They think, those guys are crazy. And we're told a great earthquake occurred, shook the foundations of the prison. The lights went out. Their shackles fell off. The doors of the prison flew open. The jailer comes rushing in. He assumes they've escaped. And the story goes that he pulled his sword ready to commit suicide. Because according to Roman law, if a soldier or a jailer lost his charges, he had to forfeit his own life. Now, he can either take his own life or the authorities would do it for him. Well, nobody wants to do it the way the Romans did it. So he's ready to kill himself. And Paul cries out from the darkness, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And they rush for the lights. They come in. And the jailer, we're told, trembling, fell at Paul's feet and asks what I call is the most direct question in all, in all of Scripture. What must I do to be saved? And to his credit, Paul gives the most direct answer in all of Scripture. He says what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. So what is required for salvation on the part of this man? Baptism? No. Confirmation? No. Church membership? No. What did he have to do in order to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he would be saved. Then the story goes, he took the apostles to his home, dressed their wounds, and he and his whole household were baptized. So we see here the baptism is a response to the faith, not the other way around. But it is curious that we're told his whole household is baptized. Now, whole households would have involved children. So if it's a response to faith, why are we baptizing children? Well, the answer is New Testament infant baptism is the equivalent of Old Testament circumcision. It's part of a covenant. In the Old Testament, on the eighth day, a child, a male child would be brought in and he would be circumcised. And that was a sign that he was being made a part of what? The visible Jewish community. Now, there would come a point where he would have to own that faith for himself. Today, they call that a what? A bar mitzvah. That's right. He becomes a man in the eyes of the Jewish community. He owns that faith for himself as a man. But up to that point, he's made a part of the visible Jewish community. Now, there's always the possibility he could reject his Judaism. But the idea is that we are making him a part of this community and we are going to raise him to know and to love the things of Judaism so that one day he will own that in an age of accountability for himself. Well, in our tradition, we have something that is exactly the same. We baptize the infant and make them a part of the visible church, but there comes an age of accountability when they will have to own that faith for themselves. And they stand before the representative of the church, who is the what? The bishop. And they confirm the promises that were made on their behalf at their baptism. And the bishop lays hands on them and confirms them. The word means a strengthening. 
a strengthening that they might walk. So look at the confirmation service one time, and you will notice that it is reiteration. You are reaffirming the promises that you made before. It's sort of like going on a trip and you've made reservations. Before you go, it's always nice to call ahead and what? Confirm them. That's what infant baptism really is. And, incidentally, that's the way you look at it if you look at the Book of Common Prayer on page 301. Page 301 in the Book of Common Prayer is the baptismal service. And it's titled, The Presentation and Examination of the Candidates. So the candidate is being presented and examined. Now, most of the time in the Anglican or Episcopal tradition, we baptize infants. Not exclusively. There's a young teenage girl that's going to be baptized this week. Praise the Lord. But most of the time, it's infants. So who's the candidate? The baby. Baby's being presented, but it says the presentation and examination of the candidates. Now, we're going to go through a whole series of questions. How many of, you do you th how many of those questions do you think that infant's going to be able to answer? None. So why do we call it the presentation and examination of the candidates? Well, here's what's interesting. We present the child, we examine the parents and the godparents. And here are the questions that we pose to the parents and the godparents. Will you be responsible for seeing that the child you present is brought up in the Christian faith and life? I will with God's help. Will you by your prayers and witness help this child to grow into the full stature of Christ? I will with God's help. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. And here's an interesting one. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Savior? I do. In the early days of the church, when you made that promise, you would always face toward the east. Because it's from the east that the Lord will return. And so when you said, do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior, you turn toward the east. You'd been facing toward the west because the west is the opposite of the east. What's the opposite of goodness and God? It's the devil. And so you face the west when you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of evil. And then when it says, do you turn to Jesus Christ, you literally turned your back on evil and face toward the east, saying that you were embracing Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Great power in that symbolism, you see. We've lost a little bit of that. But that's the power of it. So that's what happened. Do you put your whole trust in His grace and love? I do. Do you promise to follow and obey Him as your Lord? And then we turn to the congregation and we say this. Will you who witness these vows do all in your power to support these persons in their life in Christ? And we say we will. This is one of the reasons why, really... And I don't, I don't want to get into an argument with anybody, I promise you. But it's one of the reasons why baptism should be a public rite. It should be done publicly. Because the whole community... I don't agree with this woman on much. So don't come around. This is not a political statement, I promise you. I don't agree with Hillary Clinton on almost anything. But she got this part right. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes the church, it takes the community to help parents raise their children in the way that they should go. So that when they are what? Old. At an age of accountability, they will not depart from it. 
So baptism is a very important rite. It's not magic. Nobody's getting their ticket punched and automatically going to heaven. The thief on the cross was never baptized, and yet we know that he was saved because Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Adolf Hitler, on the other hand, was baptized. Benito Mussolini was baptized, was an altar boy, built a church on the Mount of Beatitudes. Those of you going with me to the Holy Land, you can actually see the church. You'll go in it. It's a magnificent church built by Benito Mussolini. Where's the fruit of that salvation? So I think we need to be very clear about what the Scripture says. Now, somebody might say, ah, but the prayer book uses the language of regeneration. It says those who are here cleansed and born again. Well, what's that all about? Well, that is symbolic language. It's not meant to be taken literally. This is a great book. I, I encourage you to get a copy of it sometimes. It's called Knots Untied. It's by Bishop J.C. Rowe, one of the great bishops in the Church of England, Bishop of Liverpool. And he has written this, and this is rather lengthy. Hang in there with me and listen to what he says. In this paper, I have one simple object in view. I wish to throw light on certain expressions about regeneration in the baptismal service of the Church of England. Above all, I wish to show that it is possible to be a consistent, honest, thoughtful member of the Church of England and yet not hold to the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. My first remark is this. I believe that according to Scripture, regeneration is that great change of heart and character which is absolutely needful to man's salvation. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Sometimes it is called conversion, sometimes being made alive from the dead, sometimes putting off the old man and putting on the new, sometimes a new creation, sometimes being renewed, sometimes being made a partaker of the divine nature. All these expressions of the Bible come to the same thing. They are all the same truth, only viewed from different points of view. They all describe that mighty, radical change of nature, which is the special office of the Holy Ghost to give, and without which no one can be saved. My second remark is this. I believe there is only one sure evidence, according to the Scripture, of anybody being born again or regenerate. That evidence is the fruit that he brings forth in the heart and in his life. Every tree is known by its fruit. Of course, I am aware that many divines maintain that we may call people born again or regenerate in whom none of the marks just described are seen or ever were seen since they were born. They tell us, in short, that people may possess the gift of the Spirit and the grace of regeneration when neither the gift nor the grace can be seen. Such a doctrine appears to me to be dangerous in the highest degree. It seems to my mind little better than antinomianism. Uh, some traditions call this the carnal Christian. You can be a Christian but live carnally. His point here is that that's an oxymoron. <laughs> no such thing as a carnal Christian. Jesus said, you'll know them by your, their fruits. My third remark is this. I believe that regeneration and baptism, according to Scripture, do not necessarily go together. I see that people may be filled with the Holy Ghost and have new hearts without baptism, like John the Baptist. John the Baptist, you know, was never baptized, according to the Trinity. He died before Jesus gave the Great Commission. But Jesus said, of all the men born of women, there was no one ever greater than John the Baptist. He said, likewise, the penitent thief. I see also, though, that there be people who have been baptized and yet remain in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, like Simon Magus, who we just talked about last week. Above all, I find St. Peter telling us expressly that the baptism which saves and whereby we are buried with Christ and put on Christ is not water baptism only, 
whether infant or adult, it is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience. It is well known that many people hold that baptism and regeneration are inseparable, but there is a fatal absence of text to support this view in Scripture. Sixteen times, at least, the new birth is mentioned in the New Testament. Regeneration is a word used twice, but only once in the sense of a change of heart. Born again, born of God, born of the Spirit, begotten of God are expressions used frequently. Once the word water is joined with the words born of the Spirit, once the word washing is joined with the word regeneration, twice believers are said to be born of the Word of God. He goes on to say, I am aware that many people think that infants must be regenerated in baptism as a matter of course because they put no bar in the way of grace and must therefore receive the sacrament worthily. Once more, I am obliged to say there is a fatal absence of Scripture to defend this view. I'm almost there. Hang in there. This is important stuff. He said, I now come to the point which forms the chief subject of this paper. That point is the true interpretation of some expressions in the baptismal service of the Church of England, which appear at first sight to contradict the view which I have been endeavoring to set forth. It is asserted that the prayer book decidedly teaches the doctrine of baptismal regeneration in the service. It is said that the words of the service, seeing now that this child is born again, we yield thee hearty thanks. I am thoroughly persuaded that the views of regeneration I maintain are the views of the prayer book, articles, and homilies of the Church of England, and I will endeavor to satisfy the reader that I have good reasons for saying so. The more I have searched into the subject, the more thoroughly convinced I have felt in my own mind that those who say the views I advocate are not church views are asserting what they cannot prove. Now, there's a lot more to this, but basically what he's going to say is, look at the whole witness of the prayer book. And you'll find that the whole witness of the prayer book said there's only one way to be saved by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. You can interpret one portion of the Bible to be repugnant to the other, and he says you can't interpret one portion of the prayer book to be repugnant to the other. You have to view the whole thing, and you can't lift one passage out of its context and build a theology around it. That's his point. So baptism is significant, he is saying. It's not the means to salvation. It is the sign that a person has been saved. It is the outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual grace. If you want to read more on that, Knots on Tide by Bishop J.C. Rowley deals with baptismal regeneration, a host of other subjects for Anglicans. But if you don't want that big, heavy book, buy this one. This is the Cliff Note version. Little book called Infant Baptism. This is what we use when we do baptismal instruction with families. It's by John P. Sartell. What Christian Parents Should Know About Infant Baptism by John P. Sartell, S-A-R-T-E-L-L-E. Um, it's published by a Presbyterian publishing company, but it's endorsed by an Anglican theologian, J.I. Packer. It's the best little primer on infant baptism I've ever come across. And I found it in an Episcopal church in Northern Virginia. Great book, Truro Church in Northern Virginia. Fantastic little book. And um, if you can't find it online, um, we've got a source for it, and uh, we'll order you a copy if you want one. Great little book to help you, your children, and indeed your grandchildren understand the significance of infant baptism. Okay? Now that's probably a lot more than you were anticipating to get. And I was perfectly prepared to move on to the conversion of St. Paul. 
But we've only got about four minutes left. So let's just pause there for a second and see if there are any questions about anything that we've discussed today. Um, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, um, the story of this man Philip, what God is doing in his life. And we can see what he was doing clearly with the advantage of hindsight or any questions that we may have about infant baptism. Martha. I can always count on you for a good question, Martha, no, so go ahead. Yeah. 